We started just a few weeks ago a sermon series called Signs to Believe. And uh, this is a series looking in the Gospel of John. There are four accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John, uh, the author, the apostle, it's the apostle John, he records seven miracles that Jesus did. And, and what he does at the end of his letter, it's on the screen, we've tried to look at this each week, uh, is, is to say these uh, signs uh, are, are, these miracles rather, are in fact signs. They, they uh, are there to show us something beyond themselves. Jacob, I think I didn't plug in that uh, remote control part of my remote control. So if you just follow that cable and plug that in for me, then I can be clicking and advancing the way I intend to. Thank you. Somebody put the Jeopardy song on for a second. There it is. Thank you. That was quick. Thank you. So John 20, 30 and 31, John writes, Jesus did many other signs, so more than the seven that are recorded in the presence of the disciples, but these, verse 31, these seven are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. To, to believe means to trust in him, not just believe in him generically, but no, he says to believe that he is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the promised one. Uh, the Son of God, and that by believing, the last part of the sentence there, uh, we would have life in his name. Ultimately, yes, that's about eternal life, being right with God, but it's so much more than a, just a ticket in your pocket for heaven one day. It's about right now having eternal life, experiencing his life flowing through us. And so we are spending this, this season uh, leading up to Easter, Easter, Next month, we are a month out from Easter. That's crazy to think of, by the way. little public service announcement. Change your clocks next weekend. Of course, all of us with phones, it all happens automatically. Uh, but next week, we get to spring ahead forward, whatever it means. And so uh, the light uh, will be longer in the day. But in this season, leading up toward Resurrection Sunday, we are looking in John's gospel at these signs. And these signs... They point to something deeper. That's, that's John's point there in, in saying this. They, they aren't just about the miracle that Jesus did in that moment. Uh, they aren't just about his display of divine power, although that's true. Uh, they, they teach us something about Jesus. In fact, here's what I want us to do today. I want us to be specifically asking, as we look at this sign, I'm about to read the passage, what does this tell us about Jesus? What, what is this pointing to beyond the sign itself. What does it teach about Jesus? So John chapter 5 is where we're at. If you have a Bible, if you'd open there. I'm going to read the whole account. I want you to hear it in one setting, and then I will spend a few minutes walking through it for us this morning. So John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. This is the healing at the pool. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, 
blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. So scholars tell us that, that John is broken down in such a way that chapter one, which we didn't spend any, any time in, right? We, we're looking at the, the signs and the signs begin with John chapter two. That's where Jesus turned water to wine. So John 1, though, just this helps us get an orientation to where we're at. John 1 is an introduction to the entire book, okay? It kind of sets up as an intro for everything else that John would write. Chapters 2, 3, and 4, they reveal how people at first were very interested in Jesus and his miracles. He was drawing a crowd everywhere he went. John 2, again, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. The first sign, Jesus turned water to wine. And it says in verse 11 of John 2 that his disciples believed. They saw that he did this and they, they believed. Of course, they, as the chapter goes on, kind of waffle in and out a little bit. Their belief is, is very young, very, very, it's very new, their, their understanding and trust of him. Uh, but, but that kind of happens. And John 3 is this conversation with Nicodemus and an extended commentary on that. And then into chapter 4, where we were last week, we have the account of this official coming, looking for Jesus and asking Jesus to heal his son, who you might recall was literally uh, at the point of death. That's how sick he was. And Jesus responded. The man, in fact, displayed what I called last week genuine belief or, or authentic faith, we could say, genuine belief, which was seen, and again, we didn't go through it, but in the first part of John 4, the Samaritans, Jesus had gone through Samaria, which wasn't his hometown, his home country. Uh, it's kind of this little pocket in those days in the middle of uh, that region with a separate group of people, ethnically and religiously. 
It says that Jesus had to pass through instead of going around, which most Jews did. He had to pass through, and he has this amazing conversation with this woman, and, and her family believes, and John writes all this to show the contrast, because then when Jesus returns up to Galilee, the, the people's faith, their belief isn't genuine. It's superficial, but, but there's this official. He, he appears to have genuine faith, and, and so John is painting this contrast, what genuine faith is like in this man, this official, this dad, like the Samaritans, unlike his own people down in Jerusalem and Judea, up in Galilee, who, who are interested in him, but it, it seems to be very superficial. And so then chapter 5 through 7, we're at 5, there begins to be this shift. One writer puts it this way. There's opposition f- from those that are interested. It's a, it's a shift to, in fact, persecution. And it's an attitude toward Jesus that's going to correspond with his establishing his authority. And that gets into where we're at today. Jesus' authority is seen in chapters 5 through 7 as he reveals himself, and this now is where we're going, to, to be Lord, to, to be God. We'll, we'll get there. That's kind of the punchline. But he, he is, has the authority and he is Lord over sickness and, in fact, over the Sabbath. So let's, let's dive into that for a few minutes this morning. And again, have that question, who is Jesus? What, what is he? What is he? What is this account, this sign pointing to? And so uh, let's, let's get caught up, understand the setting as we jump into this. The first four verses there of John 5 that I read. It says, after this, that's after chapter 4, Jesus, uh, th- there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, just real quick, it's kind of confusing. Um, we think of up as north right, or up a mountain, but uh, geographically, when, when John writes that he went up to Jerusalem, it means he went down, G, down, you know, to where Jerusalem was, but Jerusalem was on a mountain, so you go down from north to south, but you go up <laughs> to a mountain, and again, they, they're allowed to speak a little differently than we do, so he leaves Galilee and goes back to uh, Jerusalem for some feast. We don't know what feast, it's not really important. Verse 2, there's a sheep gate, there, there's this pool, uh, in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate that's in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now you notice in, in my Bible that was verse 3, and then all of a sudden the next verse is verse 5. So what happened to verse 4? Well, if you again have a Bible, you might have a footnote and uh, just briefly, because it's one of those questions that should come up if you're reading this. Whoa, what happened to verse 4? The, the newer translations, ESV, which I use, the, the NIV, uh, the Christian Standard, any of the modern translations, New Living, New American Standard, um, all of them omit verse 4. Uh, verse 4 is found in the King James or the authorized version, okay? The, the issue is simply this. Uh, most agree that verse 4 was not in the original. Okay, we, we have manuscripts, thousands and thousands of manuscripts, uh, and, and we put all those together, and by we, I don't mean me, but the scholars do. They, they study all those things, and they piece them together, and again, the evidence that we have, the just sheer quantity of evidence in, in the numbers of manuscripts cause us to be able to trust that what we have in our English Bible 
as they put all that Greek and Hebrew together, it, it puts together a reliable uh, Bible. Like we're not just talking about a few manuscripts, and so that's our best guess. No, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and we can arrive at what, in fact, the authors wrote. And in those oldest, uh, these, this verse isn't there. Probably what happened was that uh, a scribe, that's, those are the ones that copied, um, added something in. Uh, it's called a marginal note, probably to explain verse 7. So just look down one more time at verse 7. The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down. So it might be that a scribe wrote in verse 4 as an explanation. Now, uh, verse 4 says this. uh, Those that were disabled were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. See, that makes sense of verse 7. Uh, where the man says he can't get into the pool in time. Now, here's the point. Verse 4 might be exactly right. It may have been that God sent his angels every once in a while to do that. Might be. Or uh, that explanation may have been what the people thought. The people may have thought, this water gets stirred up and it must be an angel coming from God. Um, Archaeologists and others have noted that um, this pool was actually twin pools, uh, and in fact, it's so cool, I wish we could go into it, but for years and years, people pointed to this passage as a reason not to trust the Bible, because no one could find this pool. Well, archaeologists finally did, and in fact, it revealed there were a couple of pools, but they could see the form of where these five pillars would have been, and so, again, this is, this is accurate. John knew of this uh, and wrote of this, and so what, what was found is that these pools, um, they were... Uh, Um, It was fed by reservoirs that were called Solomon's Pools, and there may have been some intermittent springs which caused, you know, some disturbance and so forth. Um, And it may have been that um, there was some redness in there. Uh, Maybe people thought it was medicinal. It doesn't matter. The point is, there was this area, there was this pool, um, and and Jesus acknowledges um, this this guy here. But just again, um, to understand why, uh, we don't have a verse four. I want to spend just a minute on that. Okay, so that's our setting. But now let's get into then Jesus's authority. And, and first, we see his authority and his lordship over sickness. So verses five through nine. At this pool, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know if he was 38 years old, so if he had been, you know, paralyzed or weak something, you know, for, for th- his whole life, we, we aren't exactly uh, sure um, what, what the story is there. Um, I, I've almost been married 30 years, so I can, I can think back, I think for the most part, to the big events over the last 30 years. Um, but if I go back 38 years, that takes me to age 11. Right? That's a long time. And, and so to be in this state for 38 years, we need to feel the force of that. This man's struggle was 38 years. Verse, verse 6 says that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew 
that he had already been there a long time and Jesus is about to act. Um, John Piper observes that what we're going to see right here in verses 6, 7, and 8, in fact, are Jesus' knowledge, his compassion, and his power. Again, all that falls under his authority and lordship. So just, just observe these three things. I think it's, it's a good observation. First is knowledge. Jesus says, knew that he had already been there a long time. How, how would he know? Other than this is a moment where he had divine knowledge of the man's situation. Again, we didn't look at John 1, but in John 1 verse 48, there's a similar account of Jesus' knowledge of Nathanael. It says in John 1 48, Nathanael said to Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So there's this divine knowledge of something. Or in John 4, 18, the story of Jesus talking with the woman of Samaria, Jesus says to her, without knowing, uh, without learning anything in, in this context, you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so Jesus, as the God-man, has, has these moments in his accounts where he knows something. So just ponder that for a second. Jesus, he, he knows. He knows. And when we know Jesus, that's the kind of person who knows us. Psalm 139, verses 2 through 4 Say, God, you discern my thoughts from afar, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Jesus' knowledge, it's, it's divine. We also see Jesus' compassion. So the verse continues. Um, back in verse 3, it had said there were a multitude of sick people. There's a lot of people at this pool hoping for the water to stir, whatever they're imagining, whether really, in fact, an angel comes down or not, uh, they are hoping and waiting and wanting to be. And this man, he's been through stuff for 38 years. So verse 6b, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. We see here Jesus' compassion. Jesus cares about this guy. He, he finds him. There's multitudes of people, but Jesus goes and seeks out this one guy in this tragic situation. And the guy responds. Notice he doesn't say yes. He, just, he, he has this answer, no one can get me in the water and I, I miss out. Jesus doesn't ask any other questions. He just, verse 8, tells him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Uh, by one count, there's some nine times in the Gospels where it speaks of Jesus being moved with compassion or, or having pity for, for those that he had came for. Moved with compassion. He cares. He cares. So not only does Jesus know this man and us perfectly, which is kind of scary, 
our thoughts that we think nobody else knows. Well, aren't we glad the person around me doesn't know my thoughts? Jesus knows. But he's also compassionate toward this man and us. He also has power. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, by bed, uh, you know, it's not a nice big sleep number bed uh, like we all want. Uh, this is a straw mat, most likely. It was light and small enough that uh, it could be rolled up if it was your mat, and you could throw it over your shoulder and kind of move. Okay, Think of like camping mats. I mean, super light, super simple, but most likely made of straw. Here's what's interesting, and this is going to move us now uh, into the next section here in just a moment. Um, this man was healed, and he took up the mat, the bed, and, and walked. It doesn't say anything of him getting up and being wobbly-legged, you know, um, or, or you know, needing to stretch or, you know, his, his ligaments to be ready. He was able to go. The healing was, was instantaneous and powerful, and, and he was able to get up and, and do something that he shouldn't have been able to do, right? 38 years uh, of, of, of a struggle, uh, but but. Jesus' power is, it's divine power, it's God power, and all at once, he was healed. So Jesus has complete knowledge of him, of us. He's got great compassion for him, for us, and he's got sovereign, that is, divine power, so that when he says it, it's done. Kind of like in the story last week, in the account of the official son, when he spoke the word, even though some 15 miles away this, the young man, the young boy was, when, when the father got to the officials and they met and the exchange goes, what time did he get better? And, and, and the, they report, he knows that was the exact time Jesus had said it. So Jesus acts. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, this is how we get to know Jesus. This is how we build a relationship with him. We meet him here in his word and we speak to him. We tell him what we think and feel about his knowledge, his compassion, his power. We ask him to shape our thinking and our feelings around this side of his glory. And then we walk out, go out into the day of the week and we encounter him in the day and we live in fellowship with this Jesus, this one that has this knowledge, this compassion, this power. The real living Jesus revealed to us with absolute authority in his words. So if you have to leave right now, that's a good sermon for all of us right now. Let those three things sink in. Jesus knows, he's compassionate, and he's got power for whatever we're going through. Like Lori shared earlier as we have sung songs about God working and moving, even though we've been asking and waiting, he's, he's still the same. He can do it. So Jesus has authority and lordship over sickness. And there's more to that sickness we'll get to now, uh, even as we shift to, finally, this, this issue of, of Sabbath. And, and let me just say, by the way, we're, we're ending at verse 18 with that climactic statement. I read it and I'll read it again. 
The rest of John 5, though, is this discourse, meaning, meaning a, a sermon uh, by Jesus on all of this. And it is profound and deep. And like I teased last week, uh, I almost wish we could just, ah, forget the seven signs. Let's just go through John and spend the next two years working our way through. We're not going to do that. But uh, the Carson book, actually, one of the chapters that we're all going to read for Sunday Night Theology, spends some time in John 5, because it's in John 5 where Jesus says that the Father loves him. So remember the love of God. So what does that mean, that the Father loves Jesus? And so, um, again, get the book, read it, and, and spend some time in 519 and following. We, we have to stop today at, at verse 18, and we'll just scratch the surface here. But um, let's, let's look at this now. So verse 9b. Now, that day was the Sabbath. That's John's punchline, like exclamation mark. Like, this is the point. Like, this is all good and fine, but this was the Sabbath. Like, everybody went, when they first heard this or read this, oh no, because they kind of anticipate what's what's coming. The way John writes, this is going to be a problem. Verse 10, so the Jews, and by the way, right here in this account, this is one of those times where, again, we have to just remind ourselves, often, and this is one of them, when, when, a, when John writes the Jews, he doesn't, he's not speaking of all of the Jewish people. It's a shorthand way of saying the religious, uh, the Jewish leadership. Okay, so right here in this context, the Jews isn't saying all people that are Jewish, it's the Jewish leadership, okay? So the Jews, the leaders, said to the man, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, probably all of us just start scratching our heads at that. And we just, you know, we can't understand these leaders. Uh, This man for 38 years was paralyzed. Now he's healed and they're upset because he's taking up his mat. Well, again, uh, a couple of brief observations. Um, We are going to come back to Jesus and the Sabbath later on in John. Uh, In fact, John 9, another sign, healing, miracle, happens on the Sabbath. Um, This happens over and over again. It's all in Mark and Luke and Matthew as well. Uh, There are these encounters with Jesus and the authorities over what Jesus does on the Sabbath, and it leads them to want to kill him. I mean, very literally, the leadership, they get to the place they want to kill him because of what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. Now, just again, briefly, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, there, there was the, um, the law that, that God's people were forbidden to work on the Sabbath. But then we have to ask, well, what is work? Is rolling up your bed and carrying it work? <laughs> the rabbinic opinion, the rabbis that worked hard to interpret the law, they came up with, ready? 39 classes of work. So if the law says no work on the Sabbath, they define that down 39 different ways. And the gist, back to the law, back to what what God intended, was that um, you aren't to do your work, meaning one's customary employment. That's what God meant. Don't do your customary employment on the Sabbath. Um, But of course, there were exceptions for compassion, even for caring someone who was paralyzed. But according to the rabbis, for a paralyzed man who's now healed to roll up his mat and carry it, that constitutes work based on one of their 
39 classes. And, and again, you get the point. Their tradition uh, trumped what God had intended uh, in the beginning. He was doing something that was prohibited in the, one of those 39 categories. That's how they viewed it. So this man answers them, verse 11, the man who healed me, he told me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's interesting. This, this man is not at all like the guy we're going to see in John 9, the blind man who gets healed. That man displays a belief, a faith, a trust. This guy, he, he right away says, oh, I, look, I was told to do it. You leaders are getting mad at me. You're saying I'm breaking one of the 39 rules. Well, someone told me to do it. Verse 12. So they asked him, well, who told you to take up your bed and walk? And then again, we learn verse 13. Um, the man didn't know because Jesus had withdrawn. There was a crowd, right? If, if there's all these people, we learned multitudes of people were at this pool. Well, there was a lot of people and this, it's not time for Jesus to have a big scene. So Jesus withdraws. Jesus steps away. But Jesus isn't done with, with this man because his healing of the sickness has a deeper, deeper point to it. It's not just about him being able to walk. As great as that is, there, there was more to it. So verse 14, afterward, so we don't know how long later, but somewhere else in the temple area, Jesus finds him and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Right, let's put on our thinking hats for a few more minutes here because this is a tough one for us to hear in our day. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What in the world is Jesus saying to this man? It sure sounds like Jesus is saying that this man's 38 years of suffering was a result of some sin. But really? Could that be? A few points that I'm thankful for. Don Carson, very good and helpful on this. Are there some tragedies in Scripture, and is this one in particular, the result of specific sin? And the answer has to be yes, if we're going to be Bible people. If we're going to be Bible people. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, they sin by lying. God takes their life. 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul speaks of this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 the scriptures speak of this. In fact, in John 9, Jesus will address this as well. We'll get there. It doesn't mean that everyone who is sick at all times is sick or, or an invalid in this case because of sin, but some instances of suffering are the direct result of specific sin. The Bible affirms that. That's hard for us to hear, but that is what the scriptures teach. Number two, just the gr grammar and the syntax of these clauses. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. They, they can't be interpreted independently. They're tied together. The meaning grammatically is stop sinning lest something worse happen to you. And that leads to the implication 
that the bad thing that's already happened to this guy was occasioned by the sin which this person must not repeat. Can I just be honest with you for a second? And I'm only going to be this much honest with you. <laughs> but, but in studying this this week, I, I praise God for this because there, there, was, there was a temptation to something that I was entertaining and that was coming at me. And man, to realize that some sin leads to some suffering and, and to read this and say this caused me to go, okay, God, no, thank you for the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 says that God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we are able, but with a temptation will provide the way of escape. And my way of escape from that temptation this week was God's word. I don't want to suffer physically because of some stupid sin. Number three, Christian theology, Christian doctrine understands that suffering and tragedy are the the effects of the fall. Because of Adam and Eve, my kids in my house like to say at least once a week, Adam and Eve, it's all their fault. But because of Adam and Eve, we, we live in a fallen world. And that doesn't just mean that we sin, and we do, but, but there's tragedy, there's suffering. Things aren't the way they ought to be, aren't the way God created it. And one day he'll restore and renew. But it's, it's the reality Finally, it's very possible that John, the writer, is telling us that the reason Jesus chose this guy, right? He found this man, right? There was a multitude of sick people, but Jesus goes with his knowledge and his compassion and his power to this guy. So it might just be that John is telling us that the reason Jesus went to this guy above all the others was because that illness and his alone was tied to some specific sin and Jesus has come not just to physically heal us, but to heal us of our sin, to restore us. And what a powerful thing if he can heal this guy and then tell him to sin no more and, and, and restore that guy at his deepest level. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews, the leaders, that it was Jesus who had healed him. He doesn't say, okay, Lord, I won't sin. He he goes away and he finds the leaders and says, I know who it is, it's, it's Jesus. Again, what an odd response, different than John 9, different than the blind man, but we'll, we'll get there. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews, the leaders, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And look what happens now. The, but Jesus answered them, answered them. They didn't say anything to Jesus. It just says, that, that they're having this conversation with this man, and then John's making a statement, this is why there's going to be all this persecution. So, so Jesus, again, in his knowledge, seems to be aware of what is being thought of by the leaders and what is about to come. So Jesus now, the, the wording in John 17 uh, is such that, that it's, it's, it's very legal in its overtone. By answering, Jesus is responding to their charge and giving his defense. And this is what he says. My father is working until now, and I am working. That's drop the mic moment. <laughs> um, my father is working. And, and again, we don't have the time to tease it out um, to the degree we could. But, but at this moment now, and it really leads to verse 18. So I'll just read verse 18. 
This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not just persecute, but to kill. Why? Was it because he healed on the Sabbath? Well, yeah, they were irritated, but no, verse 18, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their understanding, he was even, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, we don't hear that in verse 17. When he says in verse 17, my father is working and I am working. Okay, your father and you're working. Like we, but they understood by, by him calling God his father. And, and again, we, right, this is on the Sabbath. Quick, quick question. Um, think back to Genesis. God created and on the seventh day he rested. But does that mean he stops controlling the universe, you know? Does he like just wind it up for 24 hours and then step back and hope that in 24 hours it's all still good and then he re-engages? No. God's people knew that even though God rested, he rested from creating and, and that work, but he still is God. He's still sovereign. He's still working in people. They knew that. God still works even though it's Sabbath. So, so Jesus' words, my father is working today, Sabbath, and I am working. And, and right there, he is making himself equal with God. And they, they simply can't have that. Jesus, who, who is this one? Who, who does these signs that, that are they're miracles, but they're signs they point beyond themselves? He has authority and lordship, church, over sickness. But it's not just to heal physical things. It's to get, to, to, to have people have forgiveness, to be, to be healed of their sin sickness. It doesn't seem like this guy responded. But, but Jesus was offering that and, and he rejected it. And John is recording this. But, but he has authority and lordship over sickness. He he's, has authority and lordship over the Sabbath because he is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, all throughout the Gospels, this account, or, or not this account, but these instances of, of conflicts over Sabbath will come up, and Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfills the Sabbath. What is ultimately Sabbath? It's not just about not working, about not doing stuff. It's about rest. It's about rest. And into the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus is our Sabbath. Our rest is in him. There's a place have a day to, to stop working, to stop being workaholics for those of you that are. I'm not, but some of you are. Some of you know you just want to work and work and work. There's a place to stop and rest. We have to. We have to sleep. Don't you hate it when you don't sleep? But we're, we have to. We, we can't go like God. So there's rhythms, yes, for literal Sabbath keeping, and, and it's a good law that, that we need to still seek to practice, but the point is Jesus is Sabbath. He is we have to find our rest in him. He, he's establishing his authority. He's God. That's the point. They saw it. By declaring this, he was declaring himself to be God. And he is. He is. That's what we get out of this. And, and again, I invite you, read 19 on and, and ponder this discourse, this uh, long speech of Jesus's about who he is and how his father loves him. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But for us, who is Jesus? He's God. 
He's Lord. He's got authority. Are we, are we going to submit to him? On the first Sunday of the month, we, we pause to remember that not only did Jesus come and teach like this and reveal himself to be God, but ultimately then in his life, in his teaching, in his acts, and then in what would happen on the cross, he fulfilled everything. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law perfectly in his life. And then where we fall short, that's why he goes to the cross to forgive, to ransom, to save, to pay the penalty. And so we, on the first Sunday of the month, pause to remember uh, that, that meal, the meal that he gave with the new covenant, the new way now that he offers. And so I'd like to invite those that are going to serve the elements to, to come forward now. And let me just read and remind you of why we stop to remember. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in a minute, Joy and Joe will pass the bread and uh, take a piece, hang on to it. Our pattern is to hold it together, and then on my instruction, we'll eat together. It's a family meal of sorts. And then we'll do the same with the cup. So let me, let me just pray. God, we want to pause to remember and, and to eat this bread and drink this cup, remembering what the Lord Jesus did to save us, to forgive us, to make us right with you. Thank you that you are present, Lord Jesus, in this meal. May we experience that reality even now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So they're going to pass the bread and just invite you to spend a few moments contemplating Jesus and what he did, maybe contemplating John chapter 5, that you just spend a few moments with the Lord quietly. Let's take church and eat together. Now the couple come and again, just take a cup, hold on to it, spend a few moments talking to the Lord about this meal, talking to him about his word, and then we'll drink together. Jesus took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink it together. So Jesus comes and he goes about teaching and preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming God's favor. And he does some signs that are recorded for us. And these signs point beyond themselves. And in the sign we look at today, we see his authority over sickness, ultimately authority to, to forgive and to call a human to sin no more, but also authority over Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath because he's God. That's our Jesus who then lives the life we can't live, 
goes to the cross instead of us, rises on the third day. Amen. Amen. That's, that's our God. That's who he is. We're going to end our service slightly differently this morning. We are going to sing, but instead of me giving a benediction that you're all used to after, uh, we're going to use the song as a commission right now. So it's been a hard week for our town, a hard week for our students especially, our high school students. We all likely know someone who goes to or has connections to Montgomery High School and Maria Carrillo High School and all the high schools. And we, we have had this, this altercation, someone's lost their life, and it's, it's tragic. What, what, are, what is our response? I think God's response is what, what we saw even in our text today. He, he knows all. He didn't catch him off guard. He's, he's compassionate, right? I mentioned there's some nine times that statement is used. One of the times it says that Jesus looked out and, and he said, that it looked like his people were like sheep without a shepherd and he felt compassion. He cared for them and, and no doubt to have students having experienced what they did, that would, I believe, have engendered the same kind of response from Jesus, that of compassion. Our response needs to be one of, of weeping with those who weep and, and acknowledging that tragedy has happened. But then also to, to go out into our community uh, in such a way not that we can do anything, but if Jesus is who he is, who he says he is, if he has the authority to do this stuff in lives, and if we've experienced that, then, then we can say, God, make me like you. you. You care. And so as I talk to people, may I be quick to listen, slow to speak. May I weep with those who weep. May I pray. Um, God, if I'm called, may I, may I be part of solutions to things, but... But, but ultimately, it's about saying, God, make me like you. Give me your heart. Give me your eyes. Give me your ears. May I be filled with your compassion. And I want to commission us to that, that we would not just retreat and, oh, man, okay. No, we're called to be light. Jesus is the light of the world, but we are the light of the world too. We are called to be salt. We're called to make a difference because of what he's done, because of who he is, his authority that's transformed us. We can go make a difference. So would you stand? And I'm going to let Lori say a couple words as well. And then we're going to sing a song that we, we've sung before. It's new-ish, but it's a prayer. It's a prayer. God, give us your heart for those that we encounter.